Welcome to Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers brewing beyond corporate law. Each week, you'll hear about their practice area, the work that they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. Welcome to our first episode. Now, I don't know about you, but I always find that there's always so much pressure when it comes to firsts. It's all about giving a good and lasting first impression, be it your first uni exam, your first job, or in this case, your first podcast episode. (laughs) I wanted to make sure that this first episode was one which could give you, the audience, a good idea of the style and nature of conversations we'll be having here on Legal Tea. So to that end... I've chosen an episode recorded back in August with my former classmate, Keir West Hunter, who's now a public law paralegal working at Simpson Miller. In this episode, we dive deep into public law, discussing how the COVID situation has created a new paradigm to the state-individual relationship, and the transition from learning about the theory of public law at university to working in the day-to-day practice of it. But that's not all we talk about. We also take the time to talk about starting your own legal career, specifically the importance of social mobility within the legal profession, Kia's personal legal journey, and the importance of honesty, patience, and outreach when trying to go your own way. So sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Kier. Thank you so much for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Now, we know each other quite well, Kier, but you know, for our listeners who, who don't know much about you, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay. Well, as you said, my name's Kier. I did law with Max at the University of Oxford at St. Anne's College. And um, I now work as a paralegal at the law firm Simpson Miller. I was kind of a justice nerd, I would probably say. I was kind of the one that everyone was like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, she's definitely going to bite you on this in relation to those public law themes. Yeah, constitutional law, administrative law, I mean, even jurisprudence. It was a meeting of the minds. <laughs> yeah, basically, I'm dedicating my life now to prove that justice does in fact pay the bill. <laughs> so then why did you want to study law? Well, I started by studying politics at A-level, and that was my first encounter with the idea of constitutions. And to me, I was just always interested in law because it seemed to be the rules that governed the relationship between this big entity of the state and us tiny little individuals. And I thought, that's such an interesting concept. And how do you sort of protect people from the natural imbalance in power that that relationship has? And I think I really view the law as that moderator, the moderator of power in relationships. And so I'm basically just really interested in those themes. And so that's why I studied law. All right, fantastic. So, you know, we talk about the modulation of power and the managing of relationships between the state and the citizen. How do you feel that is reflected in today's society? We've got this whole COVID situation happening at the moment and police are being given new administrative powers. So how do you feel the current situation is affecting that balance? 
Well, this is a really interesting situation because traditionally the political interpretation between state powers and individual freedoms has been very much quite clear. It's been very much you're either on the side of the individual or you're on the side of state power. And you kind of see that play out in things like the war on terror. But now you're seeing a new crisis emerge where it's quite hard to separate state interests from individual interests because it's a public health issue. And so you're having a real reframe of the debate in that it's not very clear whether you're on the side of the individual or you're on the side of excessive state power because we're in this situation where I think a lot of people who would traditionally be very much on the individualism side feel obligated to allow the state to monopolize on new powers in order to protect the general population. And it's kind of this political, it's a political arena where people feel a lot more comfortable with state power effectively. Public health isn't up for debate that much, whereas terrorism and human rights issues is very much more political hot potato. So I think going into this, it's interesting because I think people almost have to be very careful of their own individual political biases. For me, myself, I've always been anti-state power and state concentration of power, particularly among the executive. And that's something that I really firmly believe in. But am I pro people having to wear masks on public transport? I think on a policy idea, I kind of am. But it's really important to make sure that you still believe in the oversight of this power and that that's not subjected to your own political biases. So just because I'm pro the policy does not mean that Parliament shouldn't have a lot of involvement in reviewing the increase of executive and state power in the situation. And just because it goes with my political views right now doesn't mean that I should minimise my legal principles. So I think that role between political bias and viewpoints and how you analyze policy versus the legal implementation of that has a really interesting relationship right now. Definitely agree with you on that. It's a bit of a, a nuclear football at the moment, like you said, <laughs> yeah. this binary that we're so used to learning in law school about the state versus the individual, human rights versus executive power. Now it's a bit of a, of a minefield. Yeah. Are you for the individual? What does it mean to be for the individual? Does that mean letting people roam free without masks or having masks? But at the same time, you don't want the state to have too much power. Yeah. We can debate all afternoon about, you know, Bojo and his <laughs> amazing administration and, you know, the legality of Dominic Cummings' trip to Durham. But, um, oh, yeah, our favorite. <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, I do find that quite interesting, the new paradigm which, which public law uh, finds itself in. Um, now, Going from an academic passion to study public law and the role of the state and the citizen, how did you then decide this is a field I want to work in? Because for the typical law student, you know, from day one, we're already inundated with corporate law this, corporate law that, vac schemes, open days, mentorship schemes. <laughs> how did you manage to A, filter all that out and then find a job at a, as a public law paralegal? Well, I think the truth is it can be really hard at university to sort of go your own way and find your own path, particularly because it is such a clear track into corporate law. You know, first years they apply for inside days, they apply for open days, and second year it's time for vacation schemes, and then you go for training contracts. And so there was definitely a sense and a fear of being left behind. Am I doing the right thing? <laughs> like, um, 
But at the same time, I think I always had a very clear vision of why I wanted a law degree and the type of work I wanted to be doing and the things that I was really interested in. So, for example, I think a lot of people do law and they're interested in these big theoretical questions. And then you study the law degree and you sort of find your own niches when you're starting to do it. And they're like, some people like contracts, some people like trust, some people like constitutional law. And for me, I really went in there with, oh, I like constitutional law. <laughs> and I was just really lucky in that those things ended up being the things that actually did interest me when I studied them. I also did a couple of mini pupillages along the way. For listeners, the mini pupillage is effectively three to five day internship where you go to a chambers, which is effectively a law firm. But for barristers, I'm sure some barristers might reject this idea, but <laughs> that's effectively the simplest way I can explain it. And the way chambers work is that you do get a lot more variety of practice areas. I, well, I went to public law ones, so it was a lot more niche. And so I applied for quite niche areas. And that helped me figure out what it was that I wanted to practice. And it also helped me rule out a couple of things. Like I did a family law mini pupillage. I'm at Harcourt Chambers. And the lawyers were lovely. And the cases were really interesting. But to be honest, I just I didn't really have the stomach for it. So I didn't really want to do family law. I found it <laughs> quite like hard. Yeah, I can imagine, especially when you're dealing with children and custody and divorces. I mean, that's just mixing all that emotion with the law, you know. No, <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. They say that, you know, there's no winners in divorce. And I just, I feel like I need a winner. I need a champion. <laughs> I did a criminal law mini pupillage and that was really, really interesting. And then we studied administrative law and I just, as ab- absolutely nerdy and corny as it sounds. I really fell in love with administrative law when I studied it. And I really wanted the opportunity to get involved with judicial review, which is such a huge umbrella. And, you know, it it involves planning permission, it can involve challenging education, and all sorts of other things. So I think I just had a bit of a clear vision of what it is that I wanted to do. I tried out a few things going through it. And no, I just I couldn't go into corporate law if I just I couldn't think of reading contracts every day. You know, I just I, I couldn't I couldn't fathom doing that. And so I think it's really important to go out and find like things like mini pupillages or just if you talk to barristers or judges or anything like that, even if you don't want to be a barrister, but I think they're a lot more open to different areas of the law. Whereas a lot of public law firms on the solicitor side don't do vacation schemes and internship schemes. If you want a flavor of the law, but even if you don't want to be a barrister, I think it's worth doing. Fantastic. I can imagine as well, corporate law where you're dealing with a bunch of fictitious companies, M&A type of transactions, nothing exciting because at the end of the day, it's just rich man A buys rich man B's company and exchanges these securities and exchanges these debts. Whereas with public law, theoretically, at least during the LLB, it was a lot more high stakes. Mm. There's an individual impact, the claimant or the, the person that you're representing, or then the more greater impact of what is the state, what is the relationship between the state and the individual. Now, how does that look in a practice? Because as as, as much as as I love to read cases about judicial review and proportionality or Wensbury, as a public law paralegal, what do you do as a day-to-day? Well, I think it's actually, it's very different. And I think people will always find the jump between theory to practice quite difficult. 
because it's just, it's not the same. So studying administrative law doesn't teach you how to apply for legal aid. It doesn't teach you the really specific pieces of legislation that you have to look up to deal with an unaccompanied minor. It doesn't tell you all of these really small, intricate details. So the jump from theory to practice is a big jump. But in terms of my day-to-day routine, it's very much more, you know, you'll have a meeting with a client and you'll take their instructions and you'll try and figure out what their problem is. I think what can be really lost on you as a law student is you read the facts and it's so clear that something's gone wrong. But in reality, when you have a client coming forward to you, they themselves might not know exactly what's gone wrong or what exactly the local authority has failed to do. They might just feel like their feelings aren't being listened to. And you have to listen to what they have to say and be able to pinpoint what their real life experience translates into a legal argument. And so I think that is quite interesting and quite difficult and isn't something that you immediately think of as a new skill that you're going to have to learn when you finish a law degree. But yeah, it's very much individual focused. You might do a bit of legal research into certain areas of the law. And there's a lot of practical liaising in public law with the legal aid agency. So they cover the expenses for certain things and not other things. And so having to sort of make your case that everything that you do is for the benefit of the client. It was really interesting writing up reaction letters to the local authorities. That's always fun. And I think that's also an issue. It's not writing essays anymore. It's not, you know, is Wednesbury unreasonableness versus proportionality. It's not that sort of analysis. What you're really getting into is looking at the facts and saying this was unfair the local authority failed to take into consideration this aspect of your client or they are failing to review this decision. And it's very much, it's almost less about analyzing how much power a local authority should have and getting really to the bare bones bit. Have they failed to do something that statutorily they are meant to do? You know, in a way, it's kind of comfortable because it's a lot less gray area. It's a lot more black and white. You're coming up with your final answer. It's like answering a problem question, but... You don't get the luxury of, of that grandeur that you can get away with essays and tightening, heightening the situation. It's like, how, how dare you? The implications of this yeah. oof, would be const- constitutionally detrimental. You know, exactly. the state should never have that much power. Instead, it's more like, no, just tell me straight. Have they broken the law? Yes. No. <laughs> have they failed their duty? Exactly. And sometimes you sit there and you really think, wow, why does the local authority have this power? Or why isn't this an obligation that the local authority owes these people? But that's not the question you're being asked to answer. The question is, do they have this power, not whether they should have this power? And I think that shift can be quite hard, but it's rewarding in a different way because you get such a clear cut finish. And also the interpersonal aspect of it can't ever really be overemphasized. But the relationship that you can have with a client when you are telling them the good news, but also working them through any sort of setbacks you have, that's really the core of the practice. 
And so how, how is that like the interpersonal aspect? Because you were talking about beforehand, which I found quite interesting, how clients come to you and, and sometimes they don't even know whether anything is wrong. You have to help them diagnose what their problem is or what their legal issue is, then take them through the steps. And we're not talking about a fictitious loan purchase agreement or M&A acquisition, but we're talking about somebody being denied basic rights or something that the local authority has failed to provide or, or protect the citizen for. So I can imagine it must have the reward of the positive impact of telling your client the good news. But how about the times where you've had to give the client bad news or things have have not gone that way? How do you maintain that emotional resilience that I can imagine must come with the job? Well, I think the emotional resilience and how to prevent emotional burnout effectively. I mean, I've only been here for six months or so. The thing that I've really appreciated is the sense of camaraderie amongst your peers. And I think interpersonal relationships with your team are really, really strong because they're going to be the ones, you know, you go to for advice that you go to to say, you know, this is a really difficult legal case. I'm not sure how to phrase this to a client or that sort of thing. And also understanding where your personal boundaries are. So sometimes I'll have to shut my laptop off at 5.30 or 6 when I get off. And that's it. That's There is no more consideration of the case. I'll have to stop. I'll have to switch off. I'd have to just not think about it until the next morning. And that time off is so important. I mean, when I first started the job, I was really, really excited and I would go to dinners and they would ask me what type of cases I'd be involved in. I'd say, you know, yeah, we work on really interesting, you know, human trafficking cases and we're working on some really interesting family reunification cases and that sort of thing. And I always had to had to be told, you know, that must be kind of hard <laughs> to deal with. And I think you don't you don't really notice it because at the end of the day, you're working for someone else, and whatever stressor you have, you kind of realize, oh well, there's someone here that you need to push through for. You need to work for them and try your best. And even if it doesn't work out, you need to feel as if you've given 110 percent all of the time. So I think just having the frame of mind to say, you know, you are doing your best, you're doing the best job that you can, you're giving the client everything you can, and also taking the time off to just process and have your your you time. Can't be law all of the time. It can't be. Got to turn that public law or legal mind off, even if it's watching Netflix or, or anything else. Just yeah, no legal TV programs. That is something <laughs> that I have learned. Yeah. <laughs> no legal TV program. Yeah, I bet you'd just be pointing out all the factual inaccuracies. That's not how it works, or that's not the right documentation, <laughs> or you can't you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> So talking about public law being such a big umbrella term and judicial review, do you specialize in in a particular area of public law or are you very much more a a generalist, a a jack of all trades? So when you apply for job, well, when I applied for this job, it was for a public law paralegal, but the public law team is sort of split up into different areas. So um, since Miller, we do a lot of work in education and community care. And they're very, very different. So education is a lot more about local authorities, for example, during COVID-19, providing extra assistance for children with special needs who would get that extra help at school, but at home, they don't have their personal teacher. 
who assist them and sort of how the local authority manages their obligations to promote children in their care's education needs. Or it could be things like parents wanting to appeal exclusions if their child has been excluded from a school and you want to appeal that process, you'll go to an education team. I work in a community care team, which is also a massively wide umbrella term. It's like opening a Russian doll, you know? <laughs> you open one thinking you'd find the answer and you find another one and another one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. To give you some examples of the type of work that people do in the team, you'll have unaccompanied minors who end up in the UK and there'll be certain questions like, have they been victims of trafficking? How did they get there? Who's going to take parental responsibility for them? What are their needs? What are you going to plan for them for the next, if they're eight years old, 10 years until they're an adult? All of that is based around relationships between local authorities and this child who is now in their area and who doesn't have any parental guardianship. We also do family reunification cases, so where you have family members who have already successfully potentially claimed asylum in the UK, but they might have a child or a minor who is in France. And so you'll have an obligation under Article 8 to basically reuni reunite these two family members and how the local authority might facilitate that. There's also things like age assessments. So children who get to the UK, there'll be certain obligations between the local authorities and the child, and they'll usually assess the age because they might not have documentation. And sometimes they can get 10 years off of their actual age, making them 26 rather than 16 and that sort of thing. Um, accommodation issues for former looked after children. So this is where children have, for one reason or the other, been placed in care by the local authority and don't have relationships with their parents. And what happens when they turn 18? Are they just sort of left to do whatever else they have to do? Do they have any support? And um, what does the local authority have to provide them to kind of aid their development? That sort of thing. I mean, yeah, I've just listed five things and that's barely even scratched the surface. So effectively, it's just any sort of challenge that can be made to a local authority on the basis of their obligations to vulnerable people in their care. One of the common themes I saw in all of the examples of, of the work that you do is that, you know, you're working with family, you're working with children, but unlike family law, where it's all about there are no winners, here you're actually, you, you know, you've got a positive result in the end. It's not yeah. about kind of, you know, splitting families apart. It's reunifying them, you know, protecting children. Yeah. So that must be quite a, quite a nice kind of <laughs> change. I think that's it. I think it's the, the difference I find personally for me in looking at family law cases is that there isn't such a power imbalance. It does always, to, for me at least, go back to this power in that I deal with children and with family members who are effectively going against the state or they're not being provided by something by this entity or they're being boiled down effectively to a number and they're just not being considered as an individual and not all of their specific needs are being taken into account through local authority processes. Whereas in family law, it's just very much like, I mean, you've got these two individuals a lot of the time and, you know, they might both have valid points and <laughs> it just, your heart does break every now and then. So I think, yeah, the, the local authority being such a big figure versus the individuals I deal with who are often quite vulnerable does lend itself to sort of a different perspective.
Talking about dealing with, with local authorities, I mean, before, you know, when we talked about why you're interested in law, really about the relationship between the state and the individual, has your perception of the state changed from going from theory into practice? Do you, do you see the state any differently or is it still kind of the bad guy that we've got to, we've got to win against? I think yes, because I think in theory, you can very much get lost in this idea of the state. And it's like, what does the state even mean in reality? Whereas who I deal with generally are local authorities. And these are made up of very nice individuals that you have conversations with over the phone. And a lot of these local authorities are the issues are very much for them, at least, we have a finite pot and we have all of these statutory obligations that we don't actually have the facilities to fulfill. And that is a lot, is a, is a real difficulty. And I think it's something that really needs to play out in courts effectively. The more, the bigger questions that you see played out in a lot of the individual instances and cases that I deal with. The bigger question is, what happens to a local authority when Parliament is happy to legislate all of these statutory obligations, but they're not happy to provide the funding to actually do these statutory obligations? And how does that impact? Like, should the burden of that be placed on these vulnerable individuals or do the institutions themselves need to figure out logistically what needs to be done to ensure better practice on the ground? So in a way, I think maybe I've just sort of disengaged with this whole idea of the state and it's more recognizing the individual entities. You know, it's all about separating parliament from the executive and it's all about separating the executive from local authorities and cities and sort of the local groundwork that gets done. That's quite interesting, the systemic issues that are presented. It seems that you've uncovered, say, a more nuanced picture since going into practice of how these problems are manifested. It's no longer the Orwellian state denying people rights because it's just, you know, carrying its own pot of gold. But it's all about, you know, well, we have these funding issues and these obligation issues. And at the end of the day, you know, the person that you're talking to, the authority is, is just a human like you. They don't want to provide any harm. So... Talking about the system and the state, and we're really kind of living in a time right now where so many issues concerning the system and the state, not only with COVID, as we talked about beforehand, but also with race relations and also in, in terms of diversity and communities. How do you see this? Is, is this perhaps the needed wake-up call to move forward? I mean, it's a, it's a practice question, but also, <laughs> it's, it's also kind of a jurisprudential administrative law theory question. So apologies for yeah. the loaded obligation to answer. <laughs> but with everything that's going on right now, the state is front and center of it all. And it's not just from one angle, you know, from a public health policy angle, but now from all the other systemic failures have been brought into light. So how do you see public law and the state and communities kind of moving forward from here? That question was a lot. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think for me, in terms of purely just public law, I wish public law could get a publicist right now. That's what I wish. Because I think actually what you're seeing a lot and something that I'm obviously a massive nerd about, the, the government is currently at the moment looking into doing an inquiry in judicial review. 
and all the public lawyers on Twitter have been incredibly stressed about this idea. And I think how public law needs to develop is that people need to find a real ownership of it because it's only really nerds like me and a few other people at, at law school that find this stuff really interesting. But in reality, all of these political debates that you see in The Telegraph and in The Guardian and playing out, those are sometimes so intrinsically linked to public law that we don't feel a sense of interest into it collectively and a sense of public ownership of judicial review. Unless you're really vulnerable, people don't come into contact with public law a lot of the time. And so therefore, they don't find it important. But to me, it's just amazing that you can get so heated about ideas like Brexit, like public health concerns, and not see the public law implications of it. So I think really, we need, we need a sort of media <laughs> glamour <laughs> work to sort of get it in the public sphere. And in general, with everyone's relationship with the state at the moment, with the public health crisis, and then also with the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment, I think what we're seeing is not necessarily an outright rejection of the state, but more of questioning of, okay, there's this big, powerful entity. We're meant to respect it. We're meant to do what it says. Where's the payoff? The payoff is meant to be that they protect us from pandemics. The payoff is meant to be that we can trust the police and call them to our homes and ensure that they protect us. And so I think people are really reevaluating this relationship, not necessarily from the point of view where they're saying, we don't want a state, we don't want this powerful entity, but more in terms of critiquing it in this way of, you know, we abide by the law, we do as we're told, we stayed inside for months on end. Where is the payout? Where is the payout? Why are deaths still rising? Why am I seeing police go to protests and show excessive violence? People are starting to realize that in reality, there is a reciprocal relationship between the citizen and the state. And we decide how we participate in society on the basis of how society feeds back to us and feeds back to the people that we care about. And right now, I think there is a feeling that there is this imbalance between how much people are giving in and how much they're getting back. So essentially, we've got to review the social contract and, you know, sue for breach. Yeah. Conditions have been broken. Yeah. Do we have time for that, Max? <laughs> you know, to like review the entire social contract? <laughs> Let's, we'll, we'll take it term by term. Uh, if, if only we had all the time <laughs> in the world, but unfortunately we don't. Uh, but I, I did find quite interesting how public law needs a good PR job. It needs to get yeah. promoted out there. People need to learn more about their rights and what are the issues. And essentially, public law is a mechanism to deal with all of these problems that we're all so enraged about, yet we don't know how to address that. But one question I wanted to ask you as well is, I think one thing that, that's quite important that doesn't really get talked about a lot is social mobility within the legal profession as well. Something as important as public law, to my interpretation, and please correct me if I'm wrong, suffers from the same issue as getting into the criminal law work. Is It's something that has quite high barriers to entry, be it financial, be it experience, be it connections. 
And so a lot of people who do have that motivation or interest in public law issues might feel that they're deterred from that. I mean, you know, not going to lie, the life of a barrister isn't glamorous when, <laughs> when you're starting out. I mean, it looks great when you're looking on TV and you're seeing, you know, QCs. But, you know, when you're starting out and you're paying London rent and you've got to buy your own robes and you're being told that you're self-employed, <laughs> it isn't kind of a, you know, this isn't the life of glamour. And on the other hand, you've got corporate law firms paying your GDL, your LPC, you know, giving you scholarships. So how, how have you felt this process of getting into the public law profession? Have you found that there's a, a support system or what have you found helped you very much overcome these obstacles that currently kind of play working in these other more interesting and more important areas? You know, I think this is a really, really important point to make and to emphasize in that it's not easy at all to sort of realize that you're going to be going down a slightly less secure path. But I think there are multiple things that kind of help with this whole process. One of which I think is honesty. And the honest thing that I had to mainly tell my parents was... For a little while, uh, <laughs> you thought I was going to be a high-flying lawyer in the city. Unfortunately <laughs> for you, that, that might not be the case straight away. So I think really figure out what it is that you want. And there is no shame at all. I think you know there is all this conversation about being a sellout and that sort of thing. There's no shame at all for going for something that is a bit more financially secure for yourself. And if you're looking for the work that you find really interesting and you're willing to do that, then you need to balance these options. But you need to be honest with yourself from the start and make those compromises if you want to make those compromises. The second thing is there's no rush. And I think that is something that I personally struggled with originally. I was like, well, I want to be a barrister now. I want to be saving people's lives now. <laughs> and in reality doing a little corporate work in the way or dabbling in different areas, you might have this sort of justice bug and then you actually might enjoy contract law at university. And you shouldn't just necessarily shut that down. You have time to do both careers in your life. And a lot of the barristers that I've spoken to at open days or in groups, they've done plenty of different things. And even people that I meet at my current law firm, they've worked for big corporate law firms in the past. And then they've come and done this work. So I think, you know, be easy on yourself. You've got a lot of time. If this is an interest, cultivate the interest. Read articles. Go for these opportunities. But you don't have to do them all straight away. And then I think the third thing is networking. Don't we all hate that word? <laughs> we hate that word. Such a cheesy, it's kind of like commercial awareness, that very like vague term <laughs> that supposedly, you know, there's, there's a certain way, a certain trick to kind of get it right. Exactly. What I would do and something that I did do last year that was really, really helpful was I went on Twitter and I followed all the big public law commentators. I followed all the big barristers. I followed all of the chambers. I followed all of the charities. And what they will do is they will post about Zoom sessions. They will post about groups and you will be able to meet people, not necessarily just to get your foot in the door, but just for the advice and the peace of mind. And to know that, you know, people have done this before. Like, it's not impossible. You can do it. You can go and do the subject that you love and jump those hurdles. So I think talking to people who are actively pursuing these careers and have already made it gives you so much peace of mind. <laughs> it's, it's really, really comforting. 
So yeah, I think those would be my three tidbits. But mobility is an important issue. And they are increasingly, I think, realizing this and making amendments every year as they go. No, that's, and I think that's fantastic advice. And obviously it's, it's quite inspirational. The, the fact, your story, how you've been from the very beginning, before you even stepped into kind of law school, you, you knew what you wanted. And then kind of that was confirmed in your, in your studies at Oxford. And then after that, you were able to pursue that as a career. So that determination and, and especially in face of the structural and, and systemic adversity in terms of opportunities being much more heavily promoted to the corporate law and, and all different kind of other myriads. It's, it's really respectful. Now to get from a, a less, less dramatic and, and a bit more of a, of a fun theme, I always like to have a little fun question round at the end of these interviews. And so I think you'll, you'll love this question, Kier. Lady Hale or Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Who's your fave? Wow. Okay. Give me a second. I need to like get a little tally chart and like write a pros and cons list on either side. <laughs> um, you know, with the US election coming up, I'm going to have to, I'm really sorry, Lady Hale. I hope you never, ever listen to this. <laughs> I'm going to have to go with Ruth. I'm going to have to go with RBJ. She has such an inspirational story. And I think she plays such a sadly significant role in the United States political arena. And right now, I mean, because of the time difference, I woke up a couple of weeks ago to hear that she had another cancer scare and gone in for a scan. But at the same time, she'd also gotten the all clear. And it was honestly a roller coaster of emotions for me because <laughs> I was just really waiting for those updates. But um, no, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg has a really, really amazing story. I mean, Lady Hell has exactly as an amazing story. But I think for me personally, Ruth Bader Ginsburg represents so much as a liberal justice on the Supreme Court. And with the threat of another four years of a very, very crazy and conservative regime and the idea that they could replace her, Ruth's got my vote today. She's really got my vote and my well wishes if she ever listens to this. <laughs> well, there you have it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if you're, if you're listening, you've got a number one fan on the line. Yeah, add me on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> When she's not protecting American democracy, I'm sure, I'm sure she'll give you a, a connect request. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Kier, thank you so much for coming into the podcast. Lovely to have you. No, thank you for having me. I hope this gets out. Unfortunately, since the time of recording this episode, Ruth Bader Ginsburg sadly passed away and Kier never got that LinkedIn friend request. But like Kier said, RBG's story and legacy lives on. Now, more than ever, may she rest in peace. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Special thanks to our unsung heroes, Clara Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Wardell for scripting the show notes and blog posts, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute banger of a theme song. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on our Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn social media channels at legalt.uk for news of the latest episodes and more. Till next time. <laughs>